Hey there, it's Zach, your friendly neighborhood podcast editor. Just wanted to pop in at the beginning of this episode to let you know that if the audio sounds a little funky from time to time, that is not your car stereo's fault. That's on us. For some reason, despite recording from four different states, all of our audio got kind of glitchy. And now I'm not saying that it is a vast government conspiracy, but I'm also not saying that it wasn't. I mean, this episode is all about the biblical end times, identity politics, how religion shapes our belief in climate change, and why criminal justice has more to do with when a judge last eight than with impartial justice. And, you know, if the man is going to try to shut down one episode of Down the Wormhole, this is probably the one. So bear with the random clicks and clips that I couldn't fix and take the next hour to reconsider if your faith actually affects your beliefs or if there are other outside powers at play. You are listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, our hosts are Kendra Holtmore, a PhD student at Boston University and one of my favorite winter outdoor activities is sitting in a hot tub outside in the snow because then your bottom half is warm but your top half is cold and it's just a nice balance of temperature. My name is Adam Pryor. I teach at Bethany College in Lundsport, Kansas. It's hard for me to think about favorite outdoor winter activities right now. It was negative two with a wind chill this morning when I walked into work. There's nothing that is positive or fun about weather that cold. It's just horrible. But I, I, I went to the deep recesses of my mind of things that I, you know, before I became homogeny that I enjoyed doing in winter. So what came to mind was uh, in, in college when it would snow or ice, we would throw a ski rope out the back of the car and tow people along in Rubbermaid tubs. And you could really swing them around, and it was a ton of fun. I'm lucky that I didn't die. Rachel Jackson, rabbi at Agudas Israel Congregation, Hendersonville, North Carolina. And I also have to think about times gone by, um, because living here, winter is just mud and rain and more mud and more rain, and that's awful. I would rather have the negative two degrees. So my favorite winter activity is making snow angels. Zach Jackson, UCC pastor in Reading, Pennsylvania. And my favorite outdoor winter activity is facilitating my son's outdoor winter activity because I'm old enough now that (laughs) snow is just a chore and they actually still (laughs) like it. And so I can kind of live vicariously. Ian Benz, uh, social professor at UNC Charlotte. And my favorite winter activity are snowball fights. I love them. They're so much fun. What are you doing right now? I'm trying to eat my salad. Are you rubbing your microphone? Oh, I am doing that too. Sorry. What you is this thunder? What is the sound? <laughs> I'm getting better at editing, but that one, that one. <laughs> well, it looked like there's something on the base, and so I'm trying to get it off. But if it makes you happy, I, I got it off. It does so, make me happy, actually. I'm, so, I'm happy for you, know, you. So it was a productive moment. Yeah, well, I'm glad we were all here for that. Yeah, I, you know, there's no one else I'd want to share that with. Than you guys. Um, so. 
Oh, I should probably mute this when I'm eating, right? Can you yeah. hear me eat? Yes! Yeah, we can yeah. hear you eat. Oh. <laughs> like, pretty right. clearly. Here. I'm going to have some, some worms and peas and beans <laughs> while we're... I am eating a salad, away. but I'm eating it with chicken, so... I'll be right back. I'm going to go make my breakfast. <laughs> I have not gotten... <laughs> I All have right, not kids. gotten into the... Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a short episode. The beans. <laughs> All right, I'll mute it. Okay, great. <laughs> I am a little surprised nobody said skiing or snowboarding. I left those out because I thought they'd be easy go-tos, but you guys are a bunch of winter well, haters. Well, what I can say is I used to really enjoy skiing. I, I did it as a kid, um, as a youth, and then I didn't do it for a while, then I went back to it. And in December of 2008, I fell down the ski hill, and that ended my ever desire to ever go on a ski hill ever again. Um, I fell I fell down the mountain, and you're supposed to fall up the mountain when you fall. And I, I hurt myself pretty badly, so that's why I didn't say that one. That's fair. All right. But why, well, what, what made you ask this question? Um, well, I mean, it's not that it's like exactly related to what we're talking about today, but I just thought climate change is about, you know, the world getting warmer, which means less cold, less ice. And so I just wanted us to appreciate the ice and cold while we have it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so today, uh, our topic and overarching question is to what extent does religiosity affect perspectives on climate change? And I think this question is really interesting because I think whenever we talk about religion and climate change, people either assume like very straightforwardly, yes, the answer is yes. Of course, it affects uh, perspectives on climate change. Um, and yet there are other people who would like just with just as much confidence say, no, there's like that's not there's not really that strong of a correlation between those two things. And so I just wanted to have a chance for us to talk about like how our own experiences have influenced the way that we would answer this question because I think it is a little more complicated than just a yes or no. <clears throat> and I think that uh, it's interesting to consider what role religious institutions do play in impacting people's perspectives on climate change. Because I think at this point, if you when you start reading uh, not just like academic scholarship, but even other popular media sources, um, you will see all sorts of stories about like the multiplicity of variables that like play into whether or not religion is going to bear on someone's orientation to climate change. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But I just wanted to share first a couple of stories from my own upbringing and conversations that I've had over the years that have uh, impacted the way that I understand this question. So I grew up, uh, as I've said before on this podcast, I'm sure, in a, a fairly conservative evangelical Christian home. And if you grew up that way, you will almost certainly know the Left Behind series. Mm. Um, and how 
Zach, did you read the Left Behind series? Surely you did. I read the Left Behind series and the Left Behind for Teens series. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, and that's also worth noting. The, there was like the kid version and the adult version. Mm-hmm. And there were, I don't even know how movies. many books. I had the video I grew, game. I didn't grow up that way and I read it. Most, most of them. I finally got tired of it because I felt like it was just too repetitive. Yeah, th- there were a oh, lot of books. Boy, howdy, would you love the book of Revelation? There are <laughs> a lot of trumpets and bowls. <laughs> yeah, but they're just like left behind was sort of in the air. And I saw some of the movies. I definitely read most, if not all, of the books. Um, the teen version, I think I had. Um, my I know my parents had the adult version of the Left Behind series, but... It was just something that was like a cultural reference. If you said Left Behind, even it, even for the people that hadn't read it, they would know the gist of the story, which is just a story that follows uh, several characters who live at uh, during the end times um, in Christian eschatology, or like the, the study of end things. The end times is this period of several years that just everything... Uh, goes to hell so to speak (laughs) Um, and it's chaos and it's the apocalypse but the christian version of the apocalypse and uh in the like premillennialism perspective of in times theology which is a term that you may or may not know but um, it's like one of the more common versions of christian in times theology um it says that in order for Christ to come back in the second coming, the earth, like everything has to turn into chaos and like be destroyed basically before we can have this renewed um, earth and new heaven and before we can like finally get on with eternal life. Um, and so this, uh, this kind of theology is like very prominent and I think often taken for granted because it's just like what people believe and it's what you read about it's like I know growing up all of the churches and youth groups and like pastors and conversations with my parents and family um, this was just how we understood that the end times would happen was that things had to get really bad before they could get better and that is like the core piece of this kind of theological orientation to the end of the earth or the end of times and so I I say this because it was just so taken for granted as a framework for like human life that whenever I became older and like changed a lot in all sorts of ways, one of the things that um, I started to learn through educational institutions is just about like the facts of climate change and what that means. And I started to reflect back on these conversations with friends and family about this Christian theology that I grew up with that was very like, oriented to the kinds of things you would read in the Left Behind series, that the image that comes to my head in these conversations is a sort of shrug. Like, I just imagine looking at someone and we're talking about like environmental uh, protection or like what we think is going to happen at the end of times. And I think that I'm often met with this sort of shrug, like, well, things have to get bad. Like, it's sad, but things have to die and the earth has to be destroyed so that the next 
phase of eternal life can happen. And this is just accepted as something that's not like a moral evil or like something that we can really change. It's just what's going to happen and what's accepted. And so I think this is like an undergirding thought that I always had a difficult time determining whether that actually bared on people's actions in the like fight of climate change. Because I think a lot of those same people who had this like theological interpretation, in my experience, are still people who um, do things that they would uh, consider like practices that are trying to uh, protect the earth or animals or nature. People, these people still recycle and they still like have their own ways of actually interpreting scripture in ways that, uh, like we've talked before, I think about how there are a couple of uh, interpretations of the Genesis passage that says like have dominion over the earth and that some people say that that's like a way to manipulate nature and like use nature as a tool for our own gain and then some people look at that same passage and say no this is a call for us to be protectors and guardians of nature and so I think that just as there's ambiguity in that text that also translates into the way that like a lot of evangelical Christians with this kind of theology that's like in times doom and destruction still often like have these practices that actually are like in line with people who are more of the like climate change activist type of person. And I don't think those are like the, the same thing, but there's just some like interesting contradictions that I've seen that I wonder if you all have seen. And I think that in some ways, like that, the kind of theology that I'm talking about, I think can lead to inaction. It's like, well, it's all going to go to hell anyway, so let's just hmm. forget about it. But in my experience, there was never, I never noticed any like malicious intent to like act in ways that like quicken that destruction, even though there was like talk in a sort of like cheeky way, like, oh yeah, you know, why should we care? And it kind of, you could interpret that as someone who would maybe be inclined to do things that would like quicken the destruction of earth. But I think really on the ground, it was either uh, the kind of theology that led to inaction or um, the kind of theology that was like in their head, but on the ground, people were still trying to like take care of what they considered to be like God's creation. And it just is like a very complicated picture in my experience. And so, yeah, I think like maybe first we could like go around and share a story or a conversation that comes to your mind about how someone's religiosity either affected or didn't affect their attitudes or behavior to climate change. And what you thought was striking to you about that. And then I can share a couple of stats from Pew Research Center, which is uh, a useful organization to like under have um, like important or significant stats from the United States. Uh, and just like to help us learn a little bit about how this question bears on our lives. But I'll open that to the rest of you and we can just go around and go from there.
my, what would that have been, seventh grade Bible teacher, because I went to a Christian school, had a poster on his wall that was a timeline of the end times that had, like, it didn't say exactly which date, right, like 2025 or anything like that, It, but it had delineations of time. Like, Was it the, the seven thing, dispensations? Um, I don't, I don't know. In the end times, the dispensations in the end times or throughout history? Oh, throughout history. You're talking about just the end times, though. I'm talking about just the end times. Okay. Yeah. That, like, this thing would, would spark this, that the, the Dome of the Rock would be burned down and the, the Jews in Israel would rebuild the temple and then you would get these, these, prophets on the streets who would be prophesying and then they would die and their bodies would lay there and then they'd rise up from the grave and there'd be this beast and there'd be the UN and the rapture would happen at some point in there and all of that. And he, well, he actually told us, and this betrays my age a little bit, that um, Y2K was going to be the thing that sparked this. I remember being very afraid of Y2K. Yeah. Yeah, I remember everyone talking about that thing. You needed to go into your basement or in your church on Y2K and that you should have supplies of rice and water and canned goods and all of that because the world was going to collapse and some secular government was going to consolidate the world's powers and then after bringing peace to the world was going to somehow blame the Christians and persecute them, um, Nero style. And that would be the beginning of it. And then the Great Tribulation and the Great Rapture and then blah, 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 all that stuff. So we had it pretty well figured out. And (laughs) if you believe that that is happening like right away, the arguments that like a styrofoam cup will take thousands of years to decompose, like they didn't care about. And if you were to say something to a lot of the folks that I grew up with, they'd be like, well, you know, we've got 50 years at best it doesn't matter if it's not going to decompose in a thousand years. At the same time, if I I have a hunch that if you were to say to those same people, um, hey, the world is ending shortly, you know, that's a bummer, but we're going to build this coal plant in your backyard, but the world's ending anyway, so it doesn't matter, right? They would be opposed to it. Things that would directly affect them and their health mm-hmm. currently, I think they'd be opposed to but things that are indirect like styrofoam um, or the hole in the ozone layer which was a big deal back then i didn't really care about that because the world was ending soon in 2013 the barna group did a survey um, and 77 percent of the evangelicals that they uh, interviewed said that we were currently living in the end times Um, mainline protestants was 54 percent which was you know surprising to me because that's my people right now, and they don't seem too concerned with the end times. But I did, I can definitely back that up, that the idea that we were living in the end made a lot of folks in my, who, who were teaching me how to live, uh, really downplayed environmental concerns, the kind of environmental concerns that are like centuries out, because the world's going to be over by then. It's like right. if you knew that you had just bought a new car, and it was being delivered to your house the next day, and you're driving your old junker around, you know, you might eat ice cream in the front seat and not worry about if you dropped it on, on the floor. Because whatever, I'm getting a new one tomorrow. <laughs> so this one's just getting junked. Or let's do some target practice with it, because it doesn't matter. Mm. 
All right. So I was, I was, I was thinking about this, this question that you asked, like, how would I, how would I sort of respond to it? And, and the, the piece that continues to come to mind, right. Is that when I, when I was thinking about my own sort of like religious identity, but, but I think also um, for a lot of other folks that I would have grown up around, right. Like the identity was, was largely not evangelical, right. So it wasn't being described positively as something it was being described as not this. And so like, I almost feel like I, I had a, a strong sense of like care of creation was a fundamental Christian duty because this sort of escapist notion of a second coming and what that implied in that very like left behind sort of style was, was something that I intentionally wanted to work against. Right. So I wasn't like a noble, like, yes, climate change, we should work for that. It was more like that idea over there is not something that I'm in favor of. And in order to thumb my nose at it, I'll help the earth. <laughs> so despite the so, evangelicals, yes, you're going to so save my, the world. My, no, but I, I, I mean that like, I, uh. not... <laughs> Pretty much, yes. That's that's really what I was sort of after, right? Was like a my my noble deeds were really spite, um, in in terms of in terms of how I thought about that. But I don't I don't think that's necessarily uncommon either. And I think that was sort of when when you asked that question, Kendra, that was sort of like what what came up for me was like, is there a certain sense in which the like religious framing of climate change for some folks really becomes about not being something else? Right. Not being not being escapist, not being unca right in in making sure that that there are certain identity markers that that put one self outside of that. I think you're right. And I think that often is translated like it, it maybe starts as a religious thing for a lot of people, but ends up just being uh, an identity marker that places you on one side or the other of the political party line, which is its own <laughs> interesting. Yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm not advocating this is necessarily a positive thing in any way, shape, or form. Oh, but, yeah, no, no. But I, I do think it's like yeah. a, it, it's it's interesting, right? Because I, I think it's playing itself out in sorts of all new ways that are really mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah, for sure. Rachel or Ian, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, um, so it was really, again, I didn't have a whole lot of experience as an adolescent with this. I don't have the understandably evangelical so. <laughs> versus not evangelical. It was just, it just wasn't a thing really. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so the, in those ways, and it just wasn't, it just wasn't at the forefront of, of my family's life or so. So my adolescence did not have any of this, um, any of these challenges. So I didn't really come to the idea or the stories of climate change, to be perfectly honest, until I became a rabbi. And it was something, it was something that I personally talked about when I was working as a chemist for a biofuels company. Um, this was a company that said, we don't want to keep using right natural resources in these ways. Let's find something else. And so they were using uh, yeast and different corn fermentations to create jet fuel. F absolutely fascinating. Loved working there. And that's when it went, it dawned on me like, oh, we have 
industry control and we have personal control over what's going on in the world as opposed to just you know, with my blinders on, frankly, just living my life day to day. So that's when it when it started to to come up for me. But then the the really the religious piece didn't show up until I became a rabbi, and mm. um, I was invited to come to this Creation Care Alliance retreat, and it was a feeling where people were saying it is our responsibility because God told us so, right that how you read, you know, the dominion over the earth is actually the dominion verb is wrong. It really should just be, you know, care over the earth. And it was, it was portrayed in a very religious way. But then I just, I just had a conversation with somebody literally in my office yesterday, a person who is not Jewish, who lives in this general area and who came to me asking, it was a philo-Semite, and wanted wanted me to know that he just loves Israel and how great it is and how he's sorry that it's about to disappear. I was like, I I kind of perked up at that point. Um, um, I didn't understand what he meant. And he said, oh, well, as you can read from Ezekiel 38, this is going to happen to the Israelites and all of the end times are happening. So he's letting me know that the end times we're in them right now and we can use our political, we can see what's going on in the world to back up all of those things and from the religious text. And, and, and I, I related that it was a conceptual thing, not a literal thing. He's like, oh, and, and that made me realize that there are people that are not at all in, interested in the environmental aspect of the text where the text only suits them for how it applies to their political views. And I, and I use that story, which is a, a tangential answer to your question, simply because I, I find that I find that being Jewish makes other things hard to address where we only have so many hours in the day. Um, and we say, okay, um, if, if I want my people to continue, maybe my banner that I'm carrying is anti-Semitism, right? The, the removal of that. And I love the earth, but maybe I can't carry that banner as much because there's only so many hours that I can do. So I can do the small things and I can encourage the synagogue to, to not use paper cups and to, to not use plastic and, and things like that. But at the end of the day, still being in this minority situation, I think has clouded, uh, clouded certainly for me, but then also, I, I actually, I only want to speak for me. I'm not going to speak for all Jews or all, all congregations, but I think that that, that that minority piece has impacted, my, my religious minority has impacted my ability to address environmentalism in a way that I, that I think if I weren't Jewish. Would it be fair to say it. that? Because it sounds like what you're saying is that it's not uh, it's not that you don't do things to address uh, climate change or that you don't think about it or talk about it, but the platform that you have as a rabbi, and in particular a rabbi and not a Christian preacher, that means that you are addressing like different religious issues because as a Jew, you are not adhering to a Christian, like in times theology, understandably. 
And that that's like a very that holds very powerful um, like social capital in mm-hmm. the United States, and it's just like it's a different religious traditions orientation to eschatology, and so it doesn't make sense necessarily for you to like use your platform as a religious leader to address that in the same way, but that mm-hmm. like in other ways in your life. Uh, climate change like has more space to take the forefront is that like a a fair summary of what you just said yeah I I think it absolutely is I could keep babbling but um, (laughs) you made it concise and understandable so for me I didn't really being I didn't really grow up in a religious environment I didn't really become aware of like the impact of people's religious views on how they reacted to climate change stuff until maybe the last five or seven years. And I just didn't pay attention to it, I guess, because, you know, within the Episcopal church, it's the science is accepted, you know, that kind of stuff. And um, we really don't have a lot of trouble with those things. And so, and it, it may be a little bit longer than five to seven years, but I just, I, is when I, when I really started kind of realizing why some, you know, some people would say that there's nothing, we don't have to do anything because God's going to take care of it all. Mm-hmm. You know, and then, and then that was kind of the first time I really started paying attention to it. And then when I started hearing people, you know, add to that of, well, you know, the Bible says that, you know, humans have dominion over all. And so because of that, it's ours to do with what we please. So I'm not going to listen to this climate change mumbo jumbo. And when it's when I really started kind of being like, oh, you know, it's fascinating. And so it, to me, it's not like some people were using it as a, I don't have to worry about anything because it's out of my hands. So what's the point type deal? Yeah. I hear that a lot. Yeah. And so we're not, we're not big enough. We're not strong enough to do that. Only God is big enough to make changes that much. Yeah. To, I mean, who are we to think that our species could do that? Right. Usually it's not our species. Who are we to think that humans can do that? Your people. Oh yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I would always be surprised that how people would just, to me, I felt like it was a, a, to me, it felt like a misunderstanding potentially of scripture or just a, maybe a crutch too of, I don't want to make changes in my life. So, you know, that's just kind of how I, I saw it. And then it was never something I went up to someone and said, oh, you're just using this as a crutch or I just was always kind of taken aback by it and surprised that that's would be the messaging from some people. and conversations that we have shared with each other we see like the diversity of opinions or experiences Mm -hmm. that say like whether or not religion was really an important part of our like climate change awareness and I think that that is also reflected in um, the stats by organizations like Pew so there's a survey that came out I believe it's 2015 Um, And they asked, you know, a series of questions to people from different religious traditions. And well, I say different religious traditions. That's not uh, necessarily true. It's actually uh, different like 
Protestant and Catholic groups that were divided by um, ethnic categories. So like white evangelical, white mainline, um, like black Protestant, white Catholic, Hispanic Catholic. Yeah. And so what was interesting about the chart that they put together from the stats is that actually the better predictor of someone's perspectives on climate change was not religiosity, but was rather um, ethnic group and these other like socioeconomic variables. And it's interesting because I think this is also like a reflection of the things that we have been sharing, but it's also, I think on par with, I know Zach mentioned this, it's been implied in several of the things that we've shared, but with like people, they want to act whenever they feel personally affected by things. Mm -hmm. And I think in this um, Pew Research Center graph, it shows that the people who are most um, likely to deny climate change or that climate change is uh, affected by human activity in particular, white evangelicals are the least likely to say that that is true. And um, in the the Pew graph, it says 28% of white evangelicals um, say that human activity is the problem, which is a very low percentage, um, as opposed to black Protestants or Hispanic Catholics who have higher percentages of their groups that will say that human activity is the source of climate change. And so it's not like these are all under the broad umbrella of Christianity, but the the interesting variable that separates them out is um, their ethnic identities. And I think that this is also really tied up with uh, class and like who is more affected by the consequences of climate change. It's not so easy to just say like, oh, Christians or Jews or Muslims, but there's like so much more happening and it's um, it's a little bit like simplistic to just say that mm-hmm. if you believe this <laughs> religiously, then you will do this um, to help mm-hmm. or hurt the cause of climate change. And so it's not easy to talk about because it is so complicated. And I think that is really frustrating for people who um, really like to engage politically and like create political arguments for or against certain religious groups or who are activists and really want to like have the call to action um, because it's like often more effective to paint a black and white picture of like this group is doing bad and this group is good. Um, But that's just like not really the picture that we see on the ground, at least not in terms of just dividing the world into these clean cut religious categories. Um, And I think what's also interesting in like listening to your stories, and I think uh, especially what you were saying, Rachel, is that um, it seems as though a lot of the um, conclusions that we come to about climate change and whether it's good or bad, uh, we wait to see what happens to us. And then we make these post hoc justifications for our Mm -hmm. actions that are not it's like a reversal of what we think should happen. Like, I, at least for me, I feel like I think of people as having principles or morals that guide their actions rather than actions or like circumstances that happen to a person. And then the person later 
like comes up with a story or like a moral or principle to like justify or explain the action that they did or the circumstances that happened to them. And I think we see a lot of that, or at least I think that there's a lot of that reversal of um, like morals and principles being painted after the fact that makes it really hard to parse out like what people are actually, like how we're actually um, using our religious institutions to help us understand or fight against or justify things about our behavior that relate to climate change. And so that's just like a bunch of things I'm throwing out there. But um, did you yeah. ever see that study with the um, uh, the probation court uh, judges? And I'll, I'll have to find it um, for you and so we can put it in the show notes where they were studying the the positive and negative rulings of these probation court judges, you know, did they vote? Did did they rule in favor of or opposed to the the person coming before them? And they grafted out in terms of how recently they had a meal, <laughs> and they found that after breakfast Horrible. they were much more lenient, <laughs> and right up until lunch they got much more strict, and then after lunch they got lenient again, and then got more strict as the day went on until they went home. So they would get and, hangry. Yeah. So these judges who were trying to be impartial. The justice system is unhangry. Yeah. And they were trying their best and they were listening to these cases and they thought they were being impartial. And when presented with the evidence that said you are judging unfairly when you're hangry, they all had really good justifications for why they had ruled the way that they did. Hmm. And those justifications, of course, were post hoc and – you know, so after the fact, uh, as a way to justify the things that they had felt and that they had done, and mm. yeah, that's amazing. In in terms of what you were saying with um, not just uh, not just this this the denominations, but also different demographics, uh, whether that's cultural or or or, or what it, or ethnic or what it might be. One of the other things that I saw in the Pew research was also how much the person believed the scientists, right? Or there was there was one of the questions I didn't. Again, this this will be in the show notes. How much the the respondent thought that scientists agreed with each other, right? Not how much scientists actually agreed mm. with each other. Right, where we now volley this con- this idea, these numbers of um, 97.3, like 97% of scientists believe in climate change and that it is human caused in 3%. Not that, but how much do you think scientists agree? And that also changed. It's not just the religion, which we see changes based on culture and ethnicity, but it's also the the faith that they have in outside authorities that I think is also very important mm. to to look at yeah yeah and the other like outside authorities being political party and and that's of course not cleanly separate from religiosity but yeah that I think earlier I said that um, ethnicity and race were strong predictors of perspectives on climate change but political party was the other one that was a stronger predictor of um, mm. religious people's yeah. perspectives on climate change, more so than religious affiliation. 
But I think it just, it makes me wish that the messaging and education of climate change issues, I wish that it was more ingrained in our education systems and less, well, I don't want to say that I want it to be less prominent in like political messaging, but I think the the con of only talking about climate change in or like on political platforms is that by the time you get to your political platform, it's too late to reach the like other polarized side. <laughs> and um, I know that's kind of a hopeless way to look at it, but I think just in particular, educating people about sea level rise and fossil fuels and like these really practical particular things, it just makes sense to me that we would want that to be more present in more like neutral educational spaces. And yes, I know that those aren't like neutral. I'm using that word as a way to say that like, (laughs) if you look at like a political debate, I just don't think that that's really, that's not gonna change people's minds as effectively as like taking kids and showing them these like facts and creating stories about like how the earth changes and why and human involvement in those stories. And I just think that there are better, like more effective ways. And I think when I um, asked the question to myself of like, what do I wish that I could tell like religious people uh, or like scientists? Uh, Like, what do I wish that scientists or clergy knew about the other side? (laughs) I think that I really, would just want it to be that like there has to be a way for both religious institutions and scientists in uh, who are like working in the public sphere to create systems of communication that are not so politically polarized and that are trying to just present information that like unifies people to like want to do the same thing to like make the earth better and to like save our resources and do these things and of course that's easier said than done but I just it doesn't seem like that's what's happening right now it seems like every time that I hear someone on the the left like talk about climate change it's something that everyone there's like a taken for granted assumption that yes this is a central value like we we do this together this is like a liberal value that we are united in. And when I hear people on the right talk about climate change, it's painted as a liberal value and there's not much openness to even understand like what what that means necessarily. And so I don't know. And maybe this is different than your experiences, but that's that's what goes through my head. I think that echoes my experiences and my uh, what I see here as well, that climate change, climate crisis, human involvement is is marked as either liberal or not liberal right going going to sort of what adam was saying right there's the defining of evangelical or just not evangelical not defining what we are so uh, yeah the liberal right and and various various liberal politicians you know promote it more than others but it's still seen of as um as a banner to wave at some point and then the more conservative politicians say well it's theirs and therefore it can't be ours as opposed to it's theirs and here's how we can make it ours right taking it taking taking ownership 
I think we talked about this way back in the conflict language episodes yeah. about how, in, in my view, so much of, of the polarization of this issue comes from the fact that back in the in the 70s or so, when at, at the rise of the um, of like the EPA and mm-hmm. the um, the governmental agencies that were tasked with helping to solve some of these problems uh, did so primarily through taxes and mm-hmm. regulations and these things that people in big business don't like. And at the time, it was the Republican Party that was closer with big business. Um, still is in most industries, though the Democrats are real cozy with a whole bunch of big business issues, um, like prescription drugs and whatnot. But that's a different episode. And <laughs> and so this marker of identity started coming up in around that time, that if you are for environmental regulations, then you must also be for liberal politics. And then the, the 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 rise of the religious right and the evangelicals and all of that who got in bed with with the political right and then you have the religious justifications for republican politics essentially and you end up with this polarized mess and now it's like our house is burning down and we're arguing about who has to do the dishes <laughs> no no our house is burning down we we can we can argue about the dishes later but they're going to burn too For me, that comes out of, I, I mean, I really liked the way, Kendra, that you were complexifying the categories that we usually want to use to talk about who's on what side of a climate change debate, right? Um, and that those those sort of ready-made categories are never as clear-cut as we want them to be. I mean, I think we're all pretty aware of that and 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 pretty much in agreement about that. And and so for me, then the question that follows from that is there are two questions. One question is, well, so why do those categories hang around? Which is also, I think, really interesting, but probably a different, that's going to go way, way afield from where we want to go. But the other question is, are there really, when we, when we dig into those categories and we realize they're more complex, how do we start to pull apart where those differences are emerging from? Right. When I, when I no longer can paint with the big brush to say, evangelical, not evangelical, right? And that's where I'm sort of propping my identity, right? And I and I have to acknowledge in that not category that I've used to set up my own sense, I've falsely put on, right? A sense of, of unanimity or a monolith that is evangelical, right? And I open that up and I start to look at it, right? How do I better understand the fears and the anxieties and the worries that are, I would argue, are driving some of those differences in terms of how people react. And particularly around climate change, I find that really interesting. As much as I like and would have said like in the last episode, right, that like play, I think, is really important, right? Creating empathy, feeling with, 
um, other people in order to 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 spur action. I think there's a a darker element here about how you know folks who are most affected by climate change can feel the fear and anxiety of what it really entails in a way that we also need to appreciate and listen to and and try to feel with and that's a not something we want to do mm-hmm. um so i i mean a lot of what you've said has really tracked for my own experiences as well i think the the question that i keep coming back to and having and i i don't have a good answer to is how do you help people take that step into breaking down the simple categories mm-hmm. so that they can engage in this process of of trying to to open up their own sort of senses of identity that are probably built on some sort of opposition that was a lot longer than i thought i was going to talk um <laughs> but i i, no, I, I I, I mean, I feel like that is every day when I walk into a classroom with college students, that is the goal. <laughs> and every day I walk out and go, I don't think it worked, <laughs> um, which maybe is why I'm demoralized and, <laughs> and talk the you, way I do. You won't but, know if it worked until much No, later. shut up, you and, hopeful people. No, oh, and it worked. They've- but here, here's the here's the pessimism part is that oh, by that okay. point they'll have forgotten it came from you anyway. Fair. So, oh, I like that. So That's they good. will be better for it, but you'll never know and they'll never know it was you and they'll think it was them. Yes. There you go. This is this is good. No, but it, it's <laughs> I I I do wonder cuz I I think that is so critical to the way religion interacts with these climate change issues. And, and what the role, when you talk about how folks who are in and really working professionally in religion in different ways talk with folks who are really professionally in sciences, right? That to me is sort of like a critical juncture where ostensibly ye religious professionals should be able to figure out how to help people engage in that process of, of, of asking tough questions, of complexifying um, the categories that they use. And yet that's really hard and as much as i think we like to say that we're good at it we might we might not be mm-hmm. there i did drive it down even a little further <laughs> <laughs> you're welcome i think what you said a couple minutes ago about like understanding fears and using that knowledge of what people fear to help do what you're saying to like you know complexify their own terminology and values and whatnot. I think that, um, I mean, I, I agree with that sentiment, but I think there is a tendency maybe to like identify the fears of insert group, like the fears of evangelicals or the fears of, you know, like white people or the fears of Hispanic Catholics or like fears of Muslim, fears of Jews. It, there's this um, way in which I'm just I, saying white people is usually the fear. Yeah. Oh, that's that's true. <laughs> we know the answer to most other people's <laughs> questions. Um, but yeah. Uh, but the fear isn't something that's like religious in nature, I don't think. Um, oh, that's interesting. And like, yeah. there are different, like if it, just to pick evangelicals, that's the strain that we're going with here. Like what do evangelicals fear and why does that help 
us understand how they approach climate change. I think the tendency would be to describe their fears in religious terms. When I think mm. that there's this competition between fears, some of which are religious in nature and are about this like Christian eschatology that we've been talking about. And some of those fears are just like basic human fears of like wanting personal stability and to feel safe and to feel like their family is safe and to be loved and to have food and water and those things. And I think um, those different categories of fears like interrelate. I think keeping them distinct is maybe more useful politically uh, to understand like why does an evangelical act in ways that seem contrary to what they believe and maybe that has to do with some of these other like basic needs that's like causing them to let go of to maybe not care for a moment about their own values or not even values but like ways of thinking about the end times um, if that makes sense so I think like people are just walking contradictions and the fears are multifaceted. And that's like part of that picture of being a complicated being. So yeah, mm. I agree is what I'm saying yeah. <laughs> with that. <laughs> Hank Green says that the most of the problems of the world can be boiled down to a failure to view other people complexly. We could have just said that. <laughs> Everyone should just listen to the... Um, Dear Hank and John podcast and <laughs> turn off this one, <laughs> which you probably can anyway. This is kind of this He's is kind of the kidding. end of the episode. So you can totally just turn it off and listen to Dear Hank and John if you want. The last thing I have to say is that we have found the answer to the question of does religiosity affect perspectives on climate change? And the answer is yes and no. <laughs> You're welcome. But mostly maybe. Whoa. So rabbinic. (laughs) Your future in academia is assured. Oh, yeah. (laughs) This has been episode 28 of the Down the Wormhole podcast. Thanks for being on this journey with us. If you want to support the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash down the wormhole podcast. If you want to get in on some of them sweet, sweet perks. And hey, You know, we're still accepting your billion-dollar ideas and how you would fix climate change and save the world. Send us your most pie-in-the-sky, ludicrous, money-is-no-object-you-have-all-the-power-in-the-world ideas, and you could win a -a one-of-a-kind, handmade, billion-dollar bill from our benevolent dictator, Kendra Holtmore. You can hit us up on all the social medias, link in the show notes, or send us an email at admin at downthewormhole.com. Better hurry, our climate series only lasts one more week. Speaking of, tune in last week as Ian helps us to figure out where to buy property so that we have the best beachfront property in 20 years. Uh, We'll also tell stories of real-life climate refugees and take a deeper look into where we're getting all this sand to rebuild the East Coast every year. And hey, if you made it this far, then I guess the messy audio didn't bother you too much. Or maybe I'm hard on myself and I'm actually getting better at this whole editing thing. Maybe there's reason to be optimistic about... No, shut up, you hopeful people. No, it it didn't work.